Uh, let's begin with prayers. We open God's Word this morning. God, we thank you for uh, your kingdom and what we're learning of it. And this morning we pray that you would bring your kingdom, uh, that we want to welcome your kingdom to receive your kingdom, to celebrate and show the world what it means to live into your future. This morning, God, I pray that in the midst of our Saturdays, in the midst of our waiting, we, we would find what it is that you have for us in that season. That's a hard prayer, God, because it asks for discomfort. It asks for waiting, God, and it says that there's something in that waiting that you might do in us. And so, God, as hard as that is to pray, we trust you with that. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this prayer. Amen. Last week, we uh, continued in a series that we've been going in for quite a while. We're walking through these symbols as the story of Jesus, the good news, the gospel. The, the story of Jesus coming to earth is the first symbol, the incarnation. We've talked through the cross and the resurrection, and now we're on this blue symbol, the ascension. What is the good news of Jesus leaving earth, which growing up, that was the problem I remember hearing about, right? It was the problem that the second coming of Jesus was going to answer. And so what good news might possibly be in Jesus leaving earth? But we're going to talk more about that over the next few weeks. It actually, Jesus announced the good news of a kingdom that he's left with us, that he is increasing, he's building, and we are welcoming, and we're being invited to to, to welcome His Spirit into our lives more and more. But this has been misunderstood for, for centuries, really, the kingdom of God. And it started with a question that the disciples asked that we talked about last week. I want to return to that question. This is in the book of Acts, chapter 1, which is where we'll spend most of our time morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open there or, or open to it on your phones. Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 6, this is what it says. Then they gathered around Him talking about Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now the idea that the disciples are thinking about is this kingdom, and when we think about Israel's kingdom, they remember back to the time of David. They remember back to a time when Israel had land and had a king that sat on a throne with territory. And I'm sure many of them thought this was going to be a physical kingdom. And we talked last week about four different Jewish groups that represented four expectations of how that kingdom would come. And we see these expectations today as well among some groups. First of those groups was the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, had this idea that if they could be the moral police, if they could set morality down the right way, then surely God would not send them into exile again and there would be hope of a Messiah that God would send. And, And then there's a group called the Herodians. The Herodians... Uh, were people that were, were accommodators, really. They, they saw that if you can't beat Rome, then why not join Rome, right? Work within the system, and so they tried to work the political route to bring the kingdom in that, in that way. There, were, there was another group called the Zealots, and the Zealots were violent revolutionaries. Uh, and they thought that maybe we can overtake Rome, and just like God defeated all those tribes before, all those countries and kingdoms to enter Israel into the Promised Land, maybe that was the hope. And, and then there was another group, the, the Essenes. And the Essenes took the route of isolation. They left the city. They, they went out into the wilderness to try to live a life that was pure and uncontaminated from the world. And my guess is that each one of us find ourselves probably drawn to one of these four routes to thinking the kingdom is going to come. We see this in modern day world. And I'm wondering this morning what it might be for you. What, what is it you might be more, most drawn to uh, in your natural self that really is not the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. His kingdom is very different from these routes. I think it's important for us to know that so we can confess those things that we step into. 
But it's interesting because when Jesus gathers these 12 guys who are going to launch this kingdom, he doesn't go to one tribe, the Pharisees, and pick 12 of them that are the best. He doesn't pick the best you know, revolutionaries. He picks a smattering of people. He picks this diverse group of 12. Think about these, the diversity of this group. You've got Simon, who's a zealot. He's one of the revolutionaries that's mentioned there. You've got Matthew, who's a tax collector. They could be seen a little bit like the Herodians working within the system. They wouldn't have gotten along, Simon and Matthew, in any other context, most likely. You've got Paul, who's not a part of the original 12, but he's a Pharisee that's used as an apostle in the early church. You've got uh, doubters uh, like Thomas that are included in this group. You've got uh, people who deny Jesus, Peter, and, and then the, the betrayer, Judas, as well. This is a strange group of people. I don't know if, uh, if Thaddeus and Bartholomew are like Essenes, because we don't hear much about them, right? Maybe... Maybe they had this isolationist to see. We don't know much about all of them, but we know this is a diverse group, and God is bringing this diverse group together for the sake of a church that he wants to establish on the earth. And my question is, how are you going to do that? These guys seem like bumbling people who mess up everything until Acts chapter 2. But you never have any picture that they could be any part of this, kind of like us, right? We're a ragtag group of people. How could God possibly use us? But he does. He uses these guys, and he brings them together. And it takes a miracle, doesn't it? It's the miracle of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives to change and transform them for the sake of His kingdom's growth in the world. That's what Acts 1 reports. So I want to read more of Acts 1 with you, but I want you to imagine yourself as I read these verses as those early disciples. You've been given the Great Commission. Jesus has spent three years with you. He said the kingdom's going to go. You're going to go into all the world. And I want you to imagine these words being said to you as the church gets launched. This is Acts 1 verse 4 is where we'll start reading. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. Before we keep reading, I want to stop there. You notice the first command Jesus gives them. Wait. Wait. We'll come back to that. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by His own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After He said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid Him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as He was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So it's interesting. The disciples actually do for once what Jesus tells them to do. They go to Jerusalem. They wait for this Holy Spirit that's promised that's going to come upon them. And I love actually the language in, in, in verse 14. I think it's key. It doesn't quite get it in the NIV like we read a moment ago. This is what it says. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is how I would give more emphasis to it. It says, they earnestly and constantly. You sense this quality, but also this constancy that's there. 
at all times. They earnestly and constantly prayed together with one mind. That together piece really means with one mind. Think about that. Here's this diverse, ragtag group of people who couldn't agree less on on all the the factors of how this kingdom is going to come. But they get together and they wait and they get on their knees and they pray to God with one mind. And I think if if we're going to see revival when it comes to Collin County, if we're going to see revival in this land, it's not going to come from a bunch of us that look alike, that all believe the same things, getting together and kind of dabbling in prayer. It's going to come because a large, diverse group of people who believe different things and look differently and speak different languages and vote differently all come together and say, you know what's most important? We're going to pray for this kingdom that matters more than any other thing that could divide us in this world. And when the world sees that at play, amazing things can begin to happen. It begs questions, doesn't it? Why is this group together? Why are they of one mind? Single-mindedness. So the first step to experiencing revival isn't actually to do any all. The first step in experiencing revival is to wait and to get on our knees before God. Which is the kind of advice that will drive any type A like myself crazy. Because if Jesus gives me the Great Commission, I know what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to start my five-year planning process. We're going to gather the right kind of people and equip them and train them. We're going to get our resources together and make sure we count the cost. And then we're going to go get them, right? But that's not what Jesus tells them to do. He tells them to wait. Wait for His presence. Wait for His Spirit to come upon them. And that's odd advice in a world like ours because ours is a world that doesn't really know how to wait, right? There's a commercial that might show this better than I can explain it this morning. You've been there before, right? This is the worst thing you can imagine, even though 10 years ago you wouldn't even know it was a bad thing, right? So what happens when your phone slows down? You go out and you buy a new phone because efficiency is top business. What happens when your computer slows down? You go out and buy a new computer. What happens when that Apple death will spins on your screen? Can you act like Jesus when that happens? Because I struggle to. This is how our culture is. Efficiency is everything. And if you are not efficient in your business, you're not going to last for long. McDonald's has perfected the art of fast. Notice I did not say perfected the art of the hamburger. But fast they've got down, and billions are served as a result of it. Uh, Look at any kind of company right now. Amazon, right? Within an hour, you can get things in certain parts of the country, Dallas being one of those places. You order the right thing in the right right place. Our... our, our, uh, Dominoes, right? In this crazy, not just we'll get this to you in 15 minutes or it's free. Like, I'm so interested in my pizza that now there's a three-step process online I can follow from when they're making it to when it gets in the car, praying for its safe delivery, right? To where it actually shows up to the house. We need to somehow see where our pizza is on the way. You, you can order on your Starbucks app and, and order so that it's there and paid for. You just walk in and pick it up and go out. These are what businesses are doing because they see the power of efficiency. In fact, next time you're at a restaurant, uh, maybe today, right, you got to lunch, I dare you, if you have a five-minute wait, not to pick up your phone during the waiting time and just see what happens inside, right? Or even a better idea, you might even sit across from the people during lunch and not take your phones out. I mean, we live in this world where we don't know how to wait. We don't know because efficiency has become the word of the day. The problem with that is that works in so many areas when it comes to consumer culture, but When we start to view God through this lens, it's interesting how our theology gets warped through it. Because we expect everything to come so quickly, and so we offer a prayer and we expect it to happen. And when that doesn't come through in the time we expect it to, all of a sudden we've got questions we've got to ask. Well, did I offer the prayer wrong and not word it correctly? 
or is God absent when we have to wait? Isn't that interesting what happens because of our culture? It's not Scripture. In fact, Scripture has all kinds of examples of people waiting, faithful people waiting. But when we see things like this happen in our life, we question if God might be absent or if we've done something wrong. But some things can't be rushed. Good wine is not created in a day. Diamonds aren't formed in a day. Disciples aren't made in a day. And some of you get this because you grew up in a different kind of world almost. You grew up in a world, maybe you grew up on a farm. And if you grew up as a farmer or son or daughter of a farmer or grandkid, you know what it's like to plant seed and have to wait for the prophet to come. You have to wait for seasons. There's night and there's day and there's winter and there's spring and there's fall. There's harvest. There's a season that demands in some professions that we wait, but most of us are in professions where if we have to wait, something's gone wrong. And sometimes in my relationship with God, if I'm honest, I assume the same thing about my prayer life. I assume the same things about the waiting game in my own life. It's as if God doesn't show up, then he must be absent if it's not on my timetable. And that kind of thinking doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from a culture of efficiency. Because when I read the Bible, waiting is not the exception. Waiting is the norm. Just brainstorm with me for a moment through Scripture. Just go from Genesis to the end, and you see people who are constantly waiting. You see Abraham and Sarah that are waiting for decades for a son. They actually try to short-circuit it and make it happen faster because they can't wait on God's timing. You see Jacob, and he thinks he has to work for seven years for Rachel, but then he gets this woman with weak eyes, which we just know that's a bad thing. We don't know what it means, right? But Leah shows up. He doesn't work another seven for Rachel, right? Waiting 14 years. Joseph waits in a pit and in prison before he becomes second in command while most of our graduates expect to be second in command right out of school, right? But we see this waiting game and we struggle with it. Moses has, uh, and the people of God have to wait 400 years before Moses shows up on the scene to free them from slavery. And then they have to wait another 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. Hannah has to wait for Samuel. Jonah waits three days in a fish of all places, right? We can't even handle not inter- no internet for 14 minutes. This is the waiting game of Scripture. And imagine the biggest waiting game I mentioned earlier, which is Saturday before the resurrection. How long must that day have seemed to all of creation? Waiting on the good news to come in the midst of crucifixion that was clear. Jesus waited 40 days in the wilderness. And let's be honest, we're all still waiting, aren't we? All of us are in a process, either currently waiting on something or will be waiting on something. And if you can't think of the application in your own life right now, we're sitting between blue and green right now, right? We're sitting between the ascension and waiting on Jesus to return to make all things new. Waiting is not the exception. Waiting is the norm. It's more common than we want to believe. And when I hear a list like that, it actually humbles me because I begin to think, well, maybe something's not wrong with me. Maybe God's not absent. Maybe God does something in the waiting. Now, I know this morning I'm speaking into some tender spots. Uh, I I noticed that in first service, and I know that's true because some of you feel waiting right now in an intense way. Uh, Maybe you feel it right now because uh, you're waiting on a a job that doesn't seem to come. Or maybe right now you're waiting on a, a spouse. Maybe specifically you're waiting on the spouse God brings, or maybe it is that you're waiting on your spouse to get healthy because the addiction is not something he or she's willing to own up. Or maybe you're waiting on your spouse to find out if he or she's actually going to stay in the marriage or not. 
Waiting is hard. Maybe, maybe right now you're waiting on a diagnosis, or maybe you've gotten the diagnosis and you're waiting on the surgery that the doctor seems much more willing to wait on than you'd like to be. Maybe you're waiting because of infertility, and it's a journey that you're walking through that you're wondering if it's ever going to come to a reality, the dream that you'd had. Maybe, maybe you're waiting, and waiting looks like grief. You're wondering, is the world ever going to go back to the way it once was? I don't know that it will. And you have friends that seem to want to push you faster through that process because waiting well, waiting is a problem, isn't it? A few years ago, I walked through a really difficult time in life, my life I want to share with you, a time of waiting before I came to this church. I was uh, preaching at a church in, in Denver, and we were walking through a really difficult situation. And there were times in that process in that church where I, I really I, I felt like God was calling me somewhere else, and I wondered what his time might be. It just didn't seem like the long-term place that he was calling us to. And I wondered what that looked like, what it would look like to see the next step, or if God had a next step, or what it was. And i, I got to be honest, I wanted to run from the situation. It was really difficult. And uh, so Holly and I began to sort through that and pray through that. And there was a, a friend in uh, a church here in Dallas, a guy named Ray, that was a mentor that stepped into my life in that season. Uh, Ray uh, was a former Church of Christ minister and he was divorced, and at that time, that meant he was going to have to look for new work. And so he became a realtor, but his first love and his heart was still in ministry. He was a teacher in his, his Sunday school class every Sunday. People loved Ray, and Ray loved young ministers. And so for some reason, Ray reached out to me in the season of waiting that I was in, wondering what was next. So we get together for lunch every time I was back in Dallas visiting family, and I would gripe and whine, assuming that what I was dealing with was much harder than anything he'd ever dealt with, which was obvious if you think back about it, that wasn't the case. And he bought my lunch more times than I can remember. And I would gripe and I would whine and I would say, when's this going to be over and what's your advice? And finally one day, Ray got honest with me and he said, you know, how old are you right now? I said, I'm 27. And he said, I found something interesting about young ministers. There's something magical, it seems like, about the age of 30 that seems like a natural transition point. But until then, you may have some more things to learn. Just some advice, stow it away. And I left that, that lunch going, this guy's crazy. He must not understand how hard it is because three years is forever. This will never happen. So I told Holly and kind of laughed it off, and we went on with our work and and I had another elder at the church in Denver that I was working with, and an opportunity arose. We thought we were probably going to be moving, and, and all of a sudden it, it didn't work out. And, and the elder said to us, you know, you really you need to stay here. You've got more to learn, and this church needs you here in this season. Well, about the next year was a, a year of transformation in my life. God really brought some people into my life. I began to sort through some of the issues that I, I was working through in terms of self-worth being in success in my field, in terms of really defining myself around things that weren't Jesus but were outside of that. And God humbled me through that season. He, he changed me in that season. And it was in a season of waiting that I tell you, it wouldn't have happened if I had jumped away and ran away in that moment. Sure enough, uh, Ray passed away in that season. And I wish through that season I'd continue to get to walk with him through that. But his words stuck with me. And about a year later was when I got a call from a church called Greenville Oaks, of all places. And it was in the season that I was finally in a healthier place. It was in a season where the elder at the church I was at said, you know, I think this probably is the season if God brings you to a place. 
And I agreed to come here because we sense God's call on our, our lives in this place. I know Ray would have loved to have grabbed one more lunch with me and had me pay for it. And just told me, I told you you were right because it was at 30 years old that I got that call. And I think back on that and I think about that time of waiting and I think about how much I didn't want to go through and I think back to the mentors that were challenging me to stay through this time and I think what would have been if I wouldn't have waited? Because what would have happened is this, I can guarantee you. What would have happened is I wouldn't have found a fit in a church that's as good of a fit as this church has been for my family and me. I would have jumped to something. I would have ran away from something rather than running towards something. And let me just leave that as a discernment factor in your life right now. If you're in a season of waiting, wait for the thing that God is calling you to, not just the thing God is calling you away from. Don't run from things. Run toward opportunities that God's calling you to. But if I had hurried my departure in Denver, I wouldn't be in a church that fit me as well, and I wouldn't be the minister that it would have been transformed through some of those difficult moments if it wouldn't have been for the waiting time that was so hard. I needed to wait, and I'm glad I did, and Ray was right, and I couldn't hear it. But it was what I needed most. And here's what I've come to learn about times of waiting, and maybe you need to hear this in a season you're in right now. There are things we can learn in waiting that we cannot learn anywhere else. Let me say that again. There are things that we can learn in waiting that we cannot learn anywhere else. I want to share with you just for the next few minutes a few things that I've learned through this season in my life that I think are true in some ways universally. The first, (coughs) excuse me, the first is this. Waiting makes us appreciate the destination much more than we would have otherwise. Tell you, recently we were reflecting on our time here. We've been here almost two years, and <clears throat> I got to tell you, it was the time of difficulty that makes us appreciate so much more the peace and the great leadership <coughs> that's in this church. I'm not getting choked up, even though God could do that in this moment. Um, and I'm grateful for the experience of hardship because you don't know good until you know bad. You don't see light fully until you've seen dark. And so I appreciate so much more the season we're in. Right now, Holly and I have not had a journey, for instance, in our lives of infertility. That's not been our journey, but we've walked beside people who that has been their journey. And I'm not going to say that they love their kids more than Holly and I do, but I think there's an appreciation in that waiting that's built that Holly and I can't fully understand. Just this week, I got a phone call that had to do with waiting. I'm preparing the sermon, so God's working on me. That happens often, right? And I get a phone call, I'm at lunch with one of you all, and I have to end up taking it to go because it didn't work out, because I got a call from Holly, and I try to remember to answer Holly's calls and no one else's, not let my phone be a distraction. I'm glad I picked it up on this day, because Holly had been in an accident this week, and fortunately she's here, she's whole, we're grateful <coughs> for God's protection over her. But as she answered the, as I answered the phone, her, she was in shock at the moment, and I, it, it sounded like she was hurt. And so I have to hurry to the scene, and... As I'm waiting, as I'm driving in the car, I'm thinking back about my message. And I'm thinking about this moment of, have you ever had this moment where someone's called you and you realize your life might be altered and changed forever? And you don't know what you're driving up on? And I'm driving up on the scene wondering what I'm going to see. And and I'm grateful that no one was injured in the wreck. But it made me appreciate Holly in a way that I take for granted on a regular basis. Because I walked with God in the waiting in between. You know what this is like, right? We appreciate the destination when we've sat in the, in the waiting, waiting for God's next step. The second thing I've learned in, in waiting, waiting helps us learn about ourselves, teaches us about ourselves. When you have to wait, 
there are things that come up out of you that you didn't know were there until you had to wait. Impatience. Pride. Questions about God that may not have been there until you're in this waiting game. <clears throat> when we were waiting on this call for our lives, uh, there was this waiting and, and there was this realization of there are things about me that I don't like and I wouldn't have seen them if I'd run from the situation. I saw them because I continued to be in that situation. I got to tell you, I grew in my love for that church because of that waiting time. I grew healthier because I saw things in myself I didn't like. Waiting is its own refining process in our lives, isn't it? It drags up things. There's pressure in a way we don't know it's there until we feel it. And then all of a sudden things come out and we get to see where God wants to continue to refine us. Waiting reveals our impatience. It reveals our pride. It reveals so many things. It teaches us about who we are. The third lesson I discovered about waiting is that waiting gives us an opportunity to trust God more fully. Think back to the story of Israel. They're in the promised land, and they want to rush to get to the, or they're, they're waiting to get to the promised land. They're in a rush to get to the promised land, but they end up circling in the wilderness for years. God takes them the long way. But there are things that they learn in that waiting they wouldn't have learned if they'd rushed into the promised land to be the people that God wanted them to be in the kingdom that he established. Manna gets shown to them day by day. And what does manna do for them? They have to learn that every morning there's going to be enough that God's going to provide. Some of you are learning that lesson right now when you're waiting. God is providing just enough manna for the day ahead. You're wondering how you're going to get through the next month, and God provides it. And manna was a way for the people of Israel for them to trust God in ways they wouldn't have had to if they'd been to the land flowing with milk and honey. They trust God because of it. The cloud by day, the fire by night, these are visible representations of God's presence among them. And they learn to trust that God is with them, and He's going to lead them where they need to go. There are times I wish I could have a cloud and a fire, don't you? A reminder that God's actually there. For the people of, of Israel, they had to learn that God was going to be there and the tabernacle becomes a new way that he's, His presence is among them. There's all kinds of examples. He leads them through the Red Sea and you have to think there were many times they wondered, is He going to ever deliver us again? Is salvation going to be there again? The Red Sea, you would think this God would be powerful enough to do anything. They'd walk through that sea. And later, there's the Jordan River crossing. And I'm sure they walked up to that Jordan River and they said, uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. Has God ever done anything like this for us before? And once their feet hit the waters, it's a reminder again of God's presence. They, they learn through this waiting time, this wilderness time, something they wouldn't have learned if they'd walked right into the promised land. Last thing I want to share with you lesson, is that waiting opens the door for God, but it also opens the door for the evil one to be at work in our lives. In seasons of waiting, I can hear God's voice sometimes more clearly, but I definitely hear the evil one's voice. And I've got to be able to discern those voices. In this season of waiting, I, I, I question a lot of things in those three years. I question my calling. If God was, maybe, maybe, that's the, maybe I'm the problem here, and God hasn't called me to this ministry. Maybe I need to, I, I, I looked up golf schools in Florida, if that tells you anything. Which is not a bad work, I'm sure, but I, I'm called to this work, but it's amazing how the evil one can work in the waiting to make us question ourselves, right? Make us question uh, and, and, and have doubt about the calling he's given to us. Some of you are, are entering into callings, and it's the waiting period that's making you ask questions to say, is this really a calling from God or not? And you've got to discern that. But don't allow the evil one to distract you from the calling God has on your life in this waiting period. Because it doesn't mean that there's not a destination out there, even if you're waiting. God may have something more ahead, and you won't be able to see it unless you wait with patience and learn the lesson that God has for you. The problem is, 
This is the truth. There are things we learn in waiting we cannot learn anywhere else. But I want to leave you with this. How we wait matters. How we wait matters. We can learn and grow in our waiting, but we can also waste the lessons that God wants to bring us in the waiting. Some of us waste it because we want to hurry through it and we hurry on to what God's going to do next and we're ready for Him to do it and He he doesn't seem to be ready to do it. And so we want to rush through and we miss lessons as we're excited about the next stage. We miss that in the waiting, God wants to do something in us and form something in us. But some of us have learned to numb our waiting, haven't we? It's so hard to wait that we begin to numb our lives through substances or through addictions of kinds. And, and, and it's so easy because our culture teaches us that sadness is a disease, doesn't it? Sadness is a disease that we need to medicate, that we need to numb, that we need to feel better about. But, but the truth is sadness, waiting, grief, those aren't things to hurry through. There are things in those seasons that we need. There, some of you have had friends when you've been going through grief that have tried to rush you through the grief process. They try to say, you've got to get back to normal life. You've got to step out of your mourning and your weeping. You've got to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Well, there's a season for that, but I'm here to tell you, some of that grief needs to happen in its own season, and that's different for different people. And so if right now you're in a season of grief, it's a season of waiting. It's a season of trusting God again. It's a season of believing that things actually can be better. So these are some of the things I'm learning in the midst of this. But I, I want us to remember this because the call for the early church was a call to wait. It was a call that before the Spirit comes on you, before you engage in that mission, the first step isn't to go do it. It's to wait for the Spirit of God to come upon you. Because before the Acts 2 church was a church, it was an Acts 1 group of people on their knees. And if we want to see revival in this church, if we want to see an Acts 2 moment, it's not going to happen through our own ingenuity. It's going to happen because we become an Acts 1 people on our knees before God. Because the worst thing possible for Israel would have been to enter into the promised land without the presence of God going with them. Let me close with this. If you have your Bibles open with me, if you would, this may be a passage that would, will stick with you if you're in the season of waiting. Exodus 33, verse 15 is where I want to read. Exodus 33.15. This is Moses' conversation with God before they enter into the promised land as they're waiting in this wilderness period. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, for Moses, the promised land means nothing without God's presence being there. Some of us for a long time, we've associated God with God's blessings, with his answers to our prayer. But the, the reality is we can enter into the promised land. We can receive the blessings of God. But if we do not have the presence of God with us, it's worthless. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's meaningless. And oh, that we would be a people like the Acts 1 people who decide, God, we do not want to enter into your blessing for us, to your revival, to your promised land without your presence with us because it means nothing without you. So as we close today, I want to invite us to pray that prayer together. God, wherever you're leading us as a people, wherever you're leading us in our lives, we want to begin from a place of waiting. We want to be an Acts 1 people on our knees. Last week, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. I want to invite us again to pray the same prayer again. And if right now you're in a season of waiting, may these words be the words of confession to God, of honoring Him, of asking His will to be done as on earth as it is in heaven, his kingdom to come. So right now I want to invite you, 
if you would, with me, for those who are able uh, to, to get on your knees before God this morning. I'm, I'm asking you to do it. If, you, if you're not able to, that's just fine. But I'd like for us to pray this prayer as a people on our knees before God as we ask for His revival to come. The words are on the screen for those of you uh, that are memorizing this version with us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.